Welcome to the Higher Calling Podcast. Today we're reviewing the fourth chapter of Hebrews. Some key points we're going to be discussing include godly fear, the two kinds of spiritual rest, rest from lifestyle, not pleasing to God, and the ultimate rest in having heaven after our life is over, and the advantage of Jesus as our high priest. We left off our last episode discussing the exodus from Egypt as symbolism of leaving sin behind, wandering through the wilderness as the symbol of searching for the rest of whole salvation, and the spiritual significance of the Canaan land, symbolizing rest from wandering and trying to guide our life our own way. I'm Daniel Marsh. And I'm David Dowdy. So let's get started. Awesome. So Hebrews chapter 4, there's only 16 verses here, and it's going to be um, maybe a shorter podcast, but this is a critical chapter in Hebrews because it transitions us from talking about generic topics about Jesus Christ into this conversation about Jesus as our high priest. So it's an important chapter, even though it's a little bit shorter. So Hebrews 4 verses 1 and 2, let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest. Any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. When I first read this passage, I was confused by the author writing, let us fear, because we know elsewhere in the Bible, we're told that fear is not of God. That's in 2 Timothy chapter 1, for God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. But meditating on this passage, it became clear that this word fear doesn't mean what we think it means today. Today, fear is associated with anxiety, worry, and depression. But at this time, fear was reverential awe or great respect. Uh, We can look in Proverbs to see fear used this way. Uh, In the first chapter, verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And in chapter 19, verse 23, The fear of the Lord tendeth to life, and he that hath it shall abide satisfied he shall not be visited with evil. So with that, we can read this passage with a little more clarity. Let us have reverential awe for what Jesus has done for us, lest we come short of the promise or let things slip. This idea is the main theme of the first few chapters. That is our connection with God is a conditional relationship. We can think of it as a contract, or as the Bible says in the Old Testament, a covenant. For a contract is two or more parties that made an agreement based on the fulfillment of certain conditions. So if one party does not meet or carry out those conditions they've agreed on, it would be called a breach of contract. Uh, And then the contract is no longer valid. One thing we can know is that God is faithful and he will never break his promises. So if there's a breach of this contract with God, it's going to be on our side. That's why the author heavily emphasizes the importance of having this deep reverence for this contract we have with God, and that we must work very hard on keeping up on our end of the deal. The plan of salvation is not the first contract God has put forth to man. The contract he made 
had made previously with mankind was with the children of Israel. And if you were to go through and read the Old Testament, you would see time and again how they breached the contract, how they violated the ordinances that God had put in place. So at one time, having a contract with God doesn't guarantee your success, or even hearing the good news of this contract does not guarantee your success. It must be through taking heed and having that deep respect for God and being diligent to walk in the way that God has set forth for us. Exactly. And we'll talk a little bit later, but think of um, Caleb and Joshua. When the children of Israel reached the Canaan land, they had a decision to make. And it was, are we going to take this inheritance that God has for us? Or are we going to disbelieve the promises of God? And, and we'll read, um, we'll go back into Numbers and read that in a little bit. But it says Caleb and Joshua had a different spirit than the rest of them. So here in verse 2, when it talks about mixing faith with the word preached, it's, um, it's a critical situation for us to read the Bible not as words on the page, but as this um, instructional booklet that helps us along our path developing that relationship with God. And there's, it was a crossroads. Are we going to believe God's promises and enter into the Canaan land? Even though there's giants there, there's huge walled cities, it's going to be difficult. Or are we going to turn around and go back into the wilderness, back to the wandering and searching, um, and back to a life of sin? I have to mix it with faith. And let's read verses 3, 4, and 5, get a little bit deeper into this chapter. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. So verse 4 is referencing the creation story, um, how God created the world in six days and then the seventh day he rested. And that idea of rest was carried forth into the Mosaic law through the Sabbath day. The seventh day they rested, they didn't partake of work, and the Jews still do that today. But thinking of us today, in the modern world, we are so very busy. Even on the days off from work or the days we go to church, we are very busy. we got to take the kids to school. We've got to keep up on the house and fix, uh, have our hobby with the car and go hiking and doing different things like that, spending time with family. We are busy. So how in this busy life do we ever make time for rest? When do we have the time to be restored. God knew that we as humans would have a hard time giving ourselves the break we need to get that restoration. That's why he put that seventh day of rest in. But all these things that I've mentioned pertain to the, the physical life, our, our, our physical bodies. How are we doing with our rest in our souls? Are we giving our souls a time of rest, a break from the busyness? Uh, the author is telling us that through 
believing in Jesus through salvation, we can enter into this rest that God gives for our souls. How many of us, from one time or another, have lying awake at night because of the immensity of the decisions we have to make, or the anxiety that comes from life, or being so exhausted you can't go to sleep, or worrying about decisions you made earlier that day? It doesn't have to be that way. God wants his children to be at rest, or in other words, at peace. Philippians 4, 4-7 through 7 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. If you're dealing with anxiety or fear that that be careful for nothing is talking to you, God has planned a better way through prayer, through rejoicing and being thankful. And when you're saved, there will be peace for you at the end of the day. Yeah, that's such a good point. And there's this uh, kind of contradiction when Jesus came and he had his message of salvation for the for the general public the general audience he said come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest and this is the rest that god has for all of us and jesus said take my yoke upon you and learn of me for i am meek and lowly in heart and ye shall find rest to your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we know that a yoke is a farming implement that oxen or plowing animals can put around their neck and it harnesses them uh, most often together so that they can pull heavy burdens or perhaps a yoke can be used around, um, around a person's neck and you can carry heavy burdens on each side of your body, um, maybe heavy buckets on both sides that are balanced around this kind of harness that you have around your neck. A yoke is a work implement. And Jesus said, look, take my yoke upon you, learn of me, and my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So don't think that we're getting off easy by ignoring Jesus' invitation the yoke and the burden of sin is a heavy yoke and a heavy burden. And, you know, just read through Pilgrim's Progress. And John Bunyan spoke of this burden um, that Christian had carried, and he just needed to get rid of it. And we all f have felt the burden of guilt that, that sin has given us and unfulfilled responsibilities and uh, broken contracts, as we've spoken earlier. And it, and it is this tedious burden that takes away the joy of life. But once once you cast that burden on Christ and salvation is given and forgiveness is given of sins, this the yoke of a Christian is easy and the burden is light. Jesus had carried and borne um, our sorrows and bore our sins on the cross and so that we can have this rest. So 
I'm, I'm going to interject here for yeah. a second. Um, that thought of we're not getting off easy by just choosing to not follow Christ. All of life involves labor and effort and hard work. And that made me think of Romans chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 16, 17, and 18. Know ye not that whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. Being then made free from sin, ye became servants of righteousness. Through salvation, we no longer have to be the servant to sin or sin's master, Satan. We, we're not in bondage to that. We, we're not slaves anymore. We can be servants of God where we have the choice to live righteously. And just that burden is so much lighter than the guilt and just the oppression that being a slave to sin is. And it, it just really goes back to that. Christ's yoke is so much lighter because it is, we're, we're, we're taking it upon ourselves. We're not it's not being forced upon us. We're not having it more put on us than we're able. It's free will. But at the same time, um, he that is not with me is against me. You're, we can't ever be this neutral ground where, you know, if I don't want to be a Christian, then I'm my own man. I'm my own person. No, unfortunately, there, that, that doesn't exist. And think of addiction the vices of the world will drive and drive and drive and take over and the addiction of uh, cigarettes or alcohol or lust and there is no free will you can resist up to a certain point and then it's um, you're a slave and in bondage to that vice and christ came to break those chains of addiction and um, he's given power to christians to say no to bad ideas and to say no to the world and sin and the bondage that comes with all of that. Um, and at the same time, what do we do? We, we, bow at the, we bow at the feet of Christ and say, make me your servant. I'm so thankful to be free of the guilt and sin of the past. I'll do anything for you. And, and that yoke is easy and that burden is light. So verse 6 in Hebrews 4, Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. So think here, remember, that this whole book of Hebrews is like a thesis document on Christianity. And it's comparing and contrasting the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's talking about the fulfillment of the law and that there is a new covenant. And we're, we're going to go back now and read about this happening. Numbers 14 talks about this transition period of time. There was an older generation that God said, look, enough is enough. There's some unbelief here. There's a lack of trust. You don't want to take these miracles that I've done for you and keep your trust and confidence in me. And so you're going to die in the wilderness. And then he took, God took the younger generation into the Canaan land. 
And over the next series of years, centuries, if you will, they did the same thing over and over again, left God, turned to idols, until God said, look, this old way of doing things, uh, the temples, the priests, the sacrifices, the new moons, the Sabbath days, it's not working. That way you can serve me in spirit and in truth. So let's go read in Numbers 14. The very first time that this happened with the children of Israel, that when the older generation could not enter into the Canaan land, which, which was going to be their rest. Okay, so Numbers 14, first 1 through 4. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us make a captain, and let us return into Egypt. And then, if you want to hear some of the backstory, go back and read chapter 13. The ten spies came back out of the Canaan land, and they had a bad report about the giants and the walled cities. We talked a little bit in our intro about this. And so in, in, in chapter 14, where we just read, they were, they were ready to turn back around and head straight back through the wilderness where they came from. So let's drop down to verse 22 through 24. Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice, surely shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any one of them that provoked me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him, and hath followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whereinto he went." and his seed shall possess it. So that's the explanation there of verse 6. Some are going to get into the rest, but to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. So reading on here in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, again he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, today after so long a time, as it is said today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. So the author is following up the wonderful message of hope that there is peace for the soul of man with a dire warning of rejecting this gift. For God's rest is meant for all, as is salvation. It's, it's, it's for everybody, for God so loved the whole world. But there are some, or we could say, a majority of people that reject God's gift to walk their own way. Man does not contain enough strength to overcome all these things of life while being at rest. You can kind of think of some of the monks out in the Far East, they, they, they are at perfect rest or the, the transcendence, but they're, 
they're just up in some hut in the mountains. They're not really making an impact on the world. They're not out living life. They're, they have to sequester themselves away to be at that tranquility. But what God is promising us is we can be in the world but not of it and have that peace and rest in our soul while still being in the mix of things. We're, we can have a family life. We can be at work. We can deal with trauma or hard situations but still have that peace in our soul that we know God's got it all all planned out we we cannot do that in our own strength to be at peace and to handle all that life throws at us so having being able to do that that takes the power of God which comes through, through salvation when you when you turn away from God you're not going to have the joy of salvation or the peace in your soul is what, what the author's trying to get at here On that same line, the Greek word for rest in verse 9 is totally different than what we read earlier. Here, it literally means heavenly rest. And as we go and read on in the chapter, it's re returning back to the first Greek word, which means an abode or a repose, which is, well, the opposite from wandering we're no longer trying to get somewhere we've made it we finally made it to a good resting place somewhere that we can live peacefully so when we're reading he that uh, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of god you can be the people of god saved totally dedicated to christ you found your rest you ceased from wandering but you haven't made heaven your home yet. And there remaineth therefore a rest of the people of God. That's our goal. That is heaven our home when our life is over. So verse 11, let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. There's a blend of uh, mutually opposing ideas here. And, and I love it. Just like my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Same thing here. Laboring to enter into rest. And it's intentional. These, uh, these mutually opposing ideas trick our brain and say, that's interesting. Let's read that again. Let's hear that again. We already spoke about Jesus' invitation to take his yoke and his burden. And those are expressions of work but he said it would be easy and light in comparison to the heavy load of sin and the taskmaster of the devil. This is indeed true. So the example of, of unbelief is given by the Jews in the wilderness journey who didn't make it to the rest. Joshua and Caleb had wanted them to partake of in Canaan. The author explains that unbelief was the cause of the punishment that kept the Jews out. And you can go back and read that story. And we covered it pretty well. The older generation of Jews did not labor to enter into their rest. And they died in the wilderness. So what are your giants in life that fight against your faith in God? What cares of life? What temptations? 
vices, bondage, or shame is keeping you from rest. And we're going to transition here to maybe a more serious uh, tone, but we're going to start to look at Jesus Christ as the high priest. And what does a priest do? A priest is making intercession to the deity in the temple on behalf of the worshipers. And let's read here in verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know, we can look one another in the eye and not be fully honest, not be fully transparent, and have hidden things in the heart, but those things are not capable of being hidden from God. They're not capable of being hidden from the Word of God. And there's two ways to think about it. There's the sorrow of the world, the, um, oh, too bad I have to stop doing what, or I can't bring this there, or I can't do that anymore if I'm going to be pleasing to God. And there's this sorrow that you got caught, sorrow of guilt, sorrow and fear of the punishment of sin. Or there's godly sorrow. We read in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10, Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that ye sorrow to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us and nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. Now think of the rich young ruler um, that approached Jesus Christ when he was doing his ministry and said, um, you know, what do I need to do to uh, attain eternal life? And Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, go and sell all that you have. And the young man was sorry because he had great possessions and he turned away and did not follow Christ. There was sorrow of the world, sorrow to give up the pleasures of this life. But that godly sorrow, and we read it in Psalms 139, 23, 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And there's this prayer and total honesty to God, a total transparency. And think of going into a temple and bowing to the floor with your face to the ground and saying, God, what do I need to do? Is there any wicked way in me? Something that maybe I, I haven't yet cleared up? Something that I haven't yet reconciled? And... Show it to me, that way I can get rid of it. Show it to me, that way I can repent of it and make it right with you. And that godly sorrow is the way to approach what we're reading. Just kind of put it in a little more layman's terms here. Uh, that was very beautiful what you just said, but it was very theological. and We want to simplify it a little bit. So the sorrow of the world is, it's almost like when you're a kid, and you go into the cookie jar, you're gonna, you're gonna go grab that cookie. If you get caught, 
you're going to be sorry that you did that. But more than likely, when your parent turns their back and they go, go back to the business, you're still going to be going back to that cookie jar to get a cookie because it, it was a very temporary sorrow. It was in the moment. I was caught. I was guilty. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm really sorry. But I'm going to go do it again because I really want that cookie. I don't know how sorry you really are. You know, I, I remember my childhood and being somewhat grumpy at my parents because, you know, I, I got reprimanded, I got punished, I got grounded, and that rebellious little nature is like, I'm so mad at my mom and dad right now because they're preventing me from doing what I want to do. So, so that type of sorrow is, it, it's not what the Word of God's talking about here. The, the godly sorrow is you get caught. You, you, you get hit with that guiltiness. That, that's the word of God. It's quick and power. You, you, you feel that stab of guilt, but it's, it's more permanent. It really hits to the root of the issue, and you, you see it in, in reality of what, how, the depth of what you were doing, how wrong it was. Sin, it's said elsewhere in the scriptures, uh, sin is the transgression of God's law. Mm-hmm. You, you're breaking the law of the most powerful being ever, and you're now on bad terms with him, and you're seeing that, and it's like, oh no, that's awful. I gotta fix this somehow. And the gratitude that you can fix it. And, and yeah, that salvation. Christ is giving you an opportunity to to resolve and reestablish this connection with God. Yes, I want to do that. And what repentance means. We kind of lose this nowadays, but repentance is turning around, turning from. So you're going one direction on the road, you know, your direction say recalculating. It's like, oh man, I missed, I missed the boat. I I should have taken that turn back there. And you can still turn around. That's what repentance is. It's like, oh man, I I made a big mistake. I need to turn around right now. Because if I keep going down this path, I'm not going to get to where I want to go. I'm not going to get to that heavenly rest that we're talking about. Godly sorrow is I made a mistake and I realized the the seriousness of it and you turn around. And that you don't want to do it anymore. And yeah, I'm never going to go make that mistake again. I'm With God's help, I'm going to stay true and faithful and in connection and just... A turning away from sin. Right. Yes. Keeping from sin. Right. That's, that message is not preached in mainstream religion. No, you don't hear that anywhere. I, I grew up as a, a, a Baptist and... It was sin you will, sin you must. You're gonna, yeah. We all make mistakes, but no, that that can mess people up. So let's finish this chapter here. Neither, uh, verse thirteen, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So I know this podcast is getting a little bit longer. We're not going to carry too much longer into this here, but coming boldly into the throne of grace, 
Um, go back and read the story of Esther. And she had to go into the throne room of King Ahasuerus. And she, even though she was the king's wife, did not take that lightly. And she was fearful that she wouldn't be received and that the king wouldn't hold out his scepter. And it caused her to fast and pray for three days that she would gain favor in the king's sight. And verse 16 is telling the, every Christian, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. Not only is our God full of mercy, but he's going to provide us a way to live our life acceptable and pleasing to God that we can go to the throne room of grace. We can enter to God's presence and he can be pleased with our life. And we need grace for many, many things. This word grace sometimes is just used, again, mainstream religion as a covering up of sin. It's, that is not the case. This is virtue of God. We need grace for many things in life. Endurance, patience, forgiveness, charity. Virtue from God is so necessary for a Christian. And we can only get it from one place. Um, and, and we can live a pleasing life to God to not be afraid to enter the throne room of grace. So just before we close, just to kind of close the loop on this episode. So the, the first half of this chapter is talking about that, that godly rest, that, that peace that comes from God. And we right before we switched over to talking about the, the word of God and things like that, we were talking about we are not able to do this in ourselves, to, to, to deal with the cares of life and have peace. Like, you can't have that. And the thing, that the, the, the catalyst that makes this happen is grace. Going to the throne of grace, getting that divine favor on your life and just, I will help you. I, I will intervene and help calm those emotions or help give you that peace of mind, help you have that right word to say to that person or to deal with whatever situation you're doing. That throne of grace, going to God and saying, I need help right now. And who's our high priest? Jesus. And he did this. And he went through his whole life and never once committed a sin. And he, he knows what it's like to be human, He's to suffer him. loss, the pain of rejection. Absolutely. And pain, that man went through a lot of pain in his life. So this is going to be a great place to stop. We could go on for a long, long time with that. So it's been a pleasure, and we hope that you found this discussion both challenging and encouraging. As always, thank you for listening. And if you have any comments or would like to contact us for any other reason, please visit www.csinning.com or email us at biblestudy at avondalecog.org. We'd love to hear from our audience and would be happy to further any discussion or pray for you uh, for any need you may be experiencing. Thank you and have a great day.